Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Uh, we are in Proverbs 8, as I mentioned to you. Now, Proverbs 8 is, it's interesting. Now, if you, if you haven't been here, or maybe you have, and you kind of forgot what we did last week, uh, two weeks ago, we did chapter 5, most of chapter 6, and chapter 7, but we had skipped a portion of 6, so we went back to that, and we did that. So, in the context of where we are in the book of Proverbs, guess what? Chapter 8 follows chapter 7. We did it two weeks ago. But chapter 7, you may recall, was looking at that adulterous woman that cries out, that tries to draw people into her unsavory practices and so on. That's the end of chapter 7, this woman crying out to draw somebody in. Chapter 8 is in sharp contrast to chapter 7 because also in chapter 8 you have a woman that is crying out to draw somebody in, but in this case you don't have someone drawing a person into sin. You have somebody and it's wisdom that's crying out and someone that is trying to draw people in to her wisdom. And so throughout this chapter, we are going to have wisdom personified. There's no person named wisdom. There's no deity named wisdom. It's wisdom personified as if she were an actual person that is speaking and drawing people to herself. And again, in chapter 8, we have very familiar material. Because once again, you'll find as we make our way through chapter 8 is wisdom is either being spoken of or she is speaking about herself as to how valuable she is. So it's a chapter that espouses the virtues of wisdom, of God's wisdom and the wisdom of acquiring that wisdom. And I say it's familiar material because we've already seen that happen a little bit in chapter 1 and then in a little in chapter 2 and portions of chapter 4 where we've seen the value of wisdom espoused and Solomon's exhortation to his son. Whatever you do, he says, you got to get wisdom. And so here we are again now in chapter 8, and I'm reminded, of, you probably have been around people that try to convince you of something. You've been there. And so they, they, there's this new restaurant. They love this restaurant. you got to try the restaurant. Restaurant's fantastic. It's the greatest place. There's 7 million restaurants out there, but this is the one. you got to go to this particular one. Or you see it a lot, particularly now in September, new TV shows are coming either back on or uh, they're brand new, and people are like, you got to watch this show. What's this show that everybody loves? I know Christine Williams loves it. This is Us or something. Like, don't do anything on Tuesday nights because you got to be home. you got to watch this show, even though I can on-demand it or whatever. But, you know, but there's these shows that are out there, and you got to watch this show. you got to try this particular show. Us old people, you got to try this doctor. Best doctor that's out there. you got to try it. And, of course, I will fight it till the day I die, but I'm not doing Whole30 no matter what. No matter what evangelist for Whole30 out there try to get me to join, I just like my candy bars too much. And I believe they're not in there, right? No candy bars on Whole30. Okay, so here's Solomon. So people get passionate about their little calls. Um, here Solomon is passionately and repeatedly talking about getting wisdom. You got to get it. It's the place to be and so on. So if you look at verse 1 through 3, that's what he does. He says, espousing wisdom's virtues, he says, Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way, at the crossroads, she takes her stand. Beside the gates in front of the town, at the entrance of the portals, there wisdom cries. Now, you notice there, wisdom, also she interchangeably, understanding, wisdom, understanding, wants to be known. 
And as I said, Solomon now, his technique in this chapter is to personify wisdom, as if wisdom were this woman that is calling out. And so personified, wisdom wants to be known, wisdom wants to be heard. You look in verse 1, it says that she calls. You look also in verse 1, it says that she loudly calls. She raises her voice that people might hear her. It says in verse 2 that she can be found on the heights. And so she goes up to the high place. So people can call out to her. People will hear what's that noise. They'll look up. They'll be able to see her. Wisdom wants to be known. It says in verse 2 there that she is beside the way. So she's not off in some corner somewhere. She's not off in some dead-end street that a few people might make their way by and see and hear and be interested. She wants everyone to hear her and to know her. Verse 3 says that she goes to the busy gates. And again, there she stands crying out because wisdom wants to be known. Wisdom desires to be heard. And so every attempt is going to be made to make her wisdom, her knowledge, her understanding known to other people. And I've said this before, but again, oftentimes great wisdom, great spiritual wisdom, it's depicted as if it's something that only a few can find. If you're willing to go through the hard task of hiking up the Himalayas to find that guru that's sitting in a hut somewhere, then you can have it. But only a select few can find great wisdom or only a select few have this wisdom disclosed to them. It's been revealed to them and them only. Even in the church we have this with the secrets. And if you come to my lecture, you buy my book for $29.99, you can have the secrets revealed to you as well. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible doesn't teach that only a select few can find wisdom. The Bible doesn't teach that it's only revealed to a select few. And if you're fortunate to go into their presence, you could have it revealed to you. The Bible teaches that it can be known, and not by just a select few, but by any that choose to listen and to obey. And so that's why we are such a privileged people to live in a place and at a time that has access to the wisdom of God, the word of God. And let me just throw this out there. How often we neglect God's word, don't we? What are you talking about? I come Sunday morning, I sit here. How often do we neglect his word Monday through Friday, Saturday mornings? But it's great wisdom that's available to each one of us. And so beginning in verse 4, Solomon now begins to quote the things that wisdom is crying out at the city gates, at the crossroads, on the heights beside the way. And he does this really all the way through the end of the chapter. Now I'm going to read right now down to about verse 12 or so. And he says this, To you, O men, I call. My cry is to the children of man. O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. That's you and I, by the way. We're the simple ones. We're the fools. Amen? All right, a couple of you. Verse 6, Hear, for I will speak noble things, and from my lips will come what is right. For my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are righteous. There is nothing twisted or crooked in them. They are all straight to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. Verse 10, take my instruction instead of silver. Take my knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. If you had a choice between a pot of gold and a Bible you should choose your Bible or the Bible. And most of you are probably thinking, well, I would choose the gold and then I'll go buy a Bible and I have all the gold with me as well. And, and I probably would choose that as well. That, that, that seems to make a lot of sense, actually. Um, but the point is, 
if you couldn't and you had to pick one or the other, then you should pick the Bible. Now, there is a distinct difference between knowledge and wisdom. I think we know that. Now, certainly there's great value in knowledge, but if knowledge is not rightly applied, then a person will never possess wisdom. So there's a difference between wisdom and knowledge. And, and we know that there are some with far less of a knowledge base that have light years more wisdom than those that are filled with a particular knowledge base. And that's because what the person, what some people know, they don't apply to their lives. And so they have plenty of knowledge, but they don't have wisdom. And you don't need to be a genius to be a man or a woman of wisdom. And you don't have to be aged, and you don't have to be a gray-headed soul that only old people can have wisdom because of the years of experience or anything like that. What we learn here is wisdom is available to young or old, and notice it's to the intelligent, but also to what Solomon calls the simple. He makes mention of them in verse 5 there. He says, oh, simple ones, learn prudence. And so you may not have this huge knowledge base, but you can still be a person that is wise by taking what you do know and applying it in wise ways. Let me ask you a question. Do you, are you a person who reads the directions? Do you read the directions? You're like, I don't know what we're talking about. Let me tell you what we're talking about. When you purchase an item, I remember buying a grill one time. It was 17,003 parts for this particular grill. And they were all thrown in a box and they're all bagged there. And I look at all these parts, and if you were doing the same, are you a person that reads the directions? Most of us probably not. If you're like me, you probably, you just jump right in, you make a bunch of mistakes, then you break out when everyone else leaves and you've stopped yelling and punching walls, then you break out the directions and you learn some wisdom from the people that should know how to put the grill together, the ones who build it. But I think too many people approach life in that way and they, they say either out loud or they say to themselves, look, I know what I'm doing. I've done things like this a lot. I don't have time to be bothered reading directions and stuff like that. Instead, I prefer to take three times as long to put it together and take it apart and put it back together properly. But too often we don't read the directions because we think I already know what I'm doing. But what we learn here is to be teachable is an absolute prerequisite, that's hard to say for me, prerequisite to being made wise. To know that you do not know is the key to receiving wisdom. And some, somebody has said, many people might have attained wisdom had they not assumed that they already had wisdom. No person will ever gain wisdom if they're not willing to be taught. Years ago when I was teaching, we had a teacher of the year, and they stopped actually giving him the award because every year he was voted teacher of the year. He was just a great teacher. And they were like, look, you can't win it every year. Let somebody else win. And what was interesting, we would have teacher in services. And I know there's a bunch of you that are teachers here. Some of the most wasted days, it seems, in the school calendar are teachers in, teacher in services. They're not a lot of fun. Oftentimes you feel like, what are we doing? I got plenty of work back in my room. Can I please get out of here and go there? But what I found interesting is the teacher of the year would sit there with a notepad, attentive, while all the other teachers, worst behaved people in schools, teachers, <laughs> teachers are the worst behaved people in schools, especially on in-service days, because all we do is we sit and we talk with each other. We get on Facebook, we play our video games. I'm sorry to like, bust anyone's bubbles here, but that's what we as teachers did. That's what I did. I, maybe they've stopped. I don't know, but that's what we did. Those days were kind of a waste for us. But here's the teacher of the year sitting there taking notes and paying attention. 
And so one time I was talking to him, and, and he knows everyone has kind of a bad attitude about it. And he said, here's how I approach it. If there's one thing I can pick up today that I can apply into my teaching, then it was a good day. And that's why he's the teacher of the year, again and again and again. Because it's those that know they need something, they know they need to learn, they're the ones that are going to learn. And no person will ever gain wisdom if they're not willing to be taught. We have to hunger, we have to thirst to be taught, to be instructed, to be guided. That's the person that's growing in wisdom that does that. And so with that, what does wisdom have to teach us? We make our way through this passage. The first thing is the character of this woman wisdom, this personified woman. It says that she is, in verse 6, it says that she is noble and that she is right. We see in verse 7, we learn that she is truthful. Again, here I will speak noble things, for my lips will come what is right. Verse 7, for my mouth will utter truth. We see she's noble, she's right, she's truthful. We see that wickedness is an abomination to her lips. Won't even enter her mouth, if you will, to come out. We see there in verse 8 that all of her words are correct and right. In the verse there, it talks about how they are righteous. The idea there is that they are correct, that they are right. We see that they are not crooked in any way, not twisted. That's the idea that there's no deception in coming out of wisdom's mouth. And so if wisdom actually was a person, you could trust every word that she says. Chew on it make ways of application into your life. Her words can be trusted because her, gar- her character is good and true. But not only that, not only are words good and right and true, but we also learn here, starting in verse 10, that they're of infinite value, it tells us. Her words are of infinite value, that nothing can be compared to the message that wisdom seeks to communicate. So you look at verse 10, it says, take my instruction instead of silver. Going back to that kind of that picture of the Bible and the pot of gold. We see in verse 10 also that they are more valuable than choice gold. She calls herself in verse 11 better than jewels and then she'll go on to say, and anything else that you can desire, that people desire, that people chase after, I'm better than those things as well. She says, and all that you may desire cannot compare with wisdom. And so you think about whatever it is that people run after, that they consider so valuable that they're, they'll f- focus their entire life to go after that particular thing, whether it's great wealth like the gold and the silver or the jewels, or for some it's fame and notoriety. However I might attain that, I'm going to go after that. It's pleasure and ease for others. Solomon here says nothing can be compared with wisdom. And thus you have these repeated instructions It's that valuable. Go get it. Pursue it. Don't stop seeking it until it actually becomes your own. Go after wisdom with the same fervency that people go after all those other things like great wealth and the like because she is that valuable. And now she's speaking. Verse 12 says, I, wisdom, dwell with prudence. I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance in the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. I have counsel and sound wisdom. I have insight. I have strength. By my kings, by me, excuse me, kings reign, and rulers decree what is just. By me, princes rule and nobles, all who govern justly. I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently find me. Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and my yield than choice silver." 
Verse 20, she says, I walk in the way of righteousness, in the paths of justice, granting an inheritance to those who love me and filling their treasures. A person that possesses wisdom will, as a result of possessing that wisdom, also possess prudence and diligence. We see that there in verse 12. That means they will make good decisions. They will say the right thing. They will not say the wrong thing or or nothing. At the right time, they'll say nothing. Wisdom, direction, prudence, all of those things, they go hand in hand, one with the other. As it says here, they dwell with one another. Knowledge, knowledge that not just sort of, I can win Jeopardy, but knowledge in the sense of knowing the right thing to do dwells with wisdom. The two are found one with the other because wisdom lives, if you will, with prudence and knowledge and discretion. You gain wisdom, you're going to get those other things along the way. Notice what wisdom doesn't live with or who she doesn't live with. It says there in verse 13, she doesn't live with pride or arrogance or wicked behavior, the way of evil or lying speech, twisted speech. And the reason being is because those things are the exact opposite of what wisdom is. And so they're not going to be found in the way of wisdom or by those who possess God's wisdom. Wisdom, look in verse 14, continues, and she exhorts of the soundness of her counsel. She says, I have counsel and sound wisdom. She brings up this idea that she has insight. And she's willing to give it to anyone that would want her counsel, the soundness of her counsel and her insight. And so she's of great character. She's of great value. Here in this little section, we see now the third of things is that there's great benefit in possessing her. A reward, if you will, for those who diligently seek her. Look at verse 17. She says, I love those who love me and those who seek me, you'll find what you're seeking. Those who seek me diligently will find me. And so you should know it is worth the effort to go searching for wisdom. Your life will forever be transformed if you commit yourself to diligently seeking after God and his wisdom. That's why it's, it's more wise to take the Bible than it is to take that one pot of gold. Because those who diligently seek me will find me. Now, the next set of verses, there's sort of, uh, it it can be kind of confusing at times. I found it for me, because if you read this next set of verses toward the end of the chapter, one of the things is, yes, wisdom's talking, so obviously it's wisdom that is being described, but as you read them, you can't help but thinking about somebody else or another person, and I'll capitalize my A. You can't help but saying, are we talking about God now, or are we talking about wisdom? And the answer, of course, is yes, we're talking about both of them. There's this other person that's shining through this discussion here about wisdom. William Arnaud, I've, told, I've quoted him many times in this study, he said this, if the Holy Spirit designed to make known something of the personal history of Jesus Christ before his coming in the flesh, he could ha- how could he have done so in plainer terms than this particular chapter? You catch that? So if God's Holy Spirit wanted to tell us a bit about Jesus before he came in the flesh because he wasn't created when he came in the flesh. He's eternally existent. If he wanted to tell us a bit about him before he became a man and walked this earth, he could not have done so in a more plainer way than Proverbs chapter 8. 
is what William Arno says. And so with that, as we're continuing to look at this idea of wisdom, we're going to sort of take a little break here and we're going to look at Jesus in uh, his pre-incarnate state, that is before he came in the flesh. And again, as I was saying, sometimes it gets confusing because sometimes you're studying, you're thinking about wisdom. All of a sudden you find yourself thinking about Jesus and you're thinking about Jesus and all of a sudden you're reminded, oh yeah, we're talking about wisdom. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the Jesus portion first and then we'll kind of put that aside and we'll just be wowed by that. And then we'll go back and we'll, we'll dig into this idea of wis- wisdom. Sound fair? I hope so because that's what I planned and that's where we're going. Colossians chapter 2 says this, that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. One of the things you should know about Jesus is Jesus does not merely possess wisdom, but Jesus is the very essence of wisdom. Jesus is wisdom. Repeatedly in the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as wisdom. Matthew 11, Luke 11, 1 Corinthians 1, Colossians chapter 2. Again, not as having wisdom, but as being wisdom himself. And so it's fitting then for us to apply these verses to Christ. And here's what we learn about Jesus from these verses. Now I would say this, if this passage, Proverbs 8, was existed all by itself, we might not be able to categorically say this about Jesus. And Jesus is pre-incarnate, in his pre-incarnate state is eternal and so on and so forth. But because we have all of the scripture and these things that I'm about to point out to you are revealed in other places in the scripture, then we know they're absolutely true. And so here's what we learn about the Lord Jesus. Proverbs 8.22, it says, The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. So we realize that Jesus is eternal. At the beginning of his work, he was there already. We see in verse 23 that he was appointed from eternity. It says, ages ago I was set up. That word means appointed, it means anointed. Again, the word Messiah means the anointed one. And so he was appointed from that eternity. Verse 24 and following, we learn of his preexistence, that he wasn't created at some point in time. Verse 24, when there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its fields or the first of the dust of the world. And so we learn of his preexistence before even creation. We learn of his presence at creation and his activity in creation, that he was a part of that process. Verse 27 says, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, the earth, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limits so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then was I beside him like a master workman. And that that phrase there, beside him, doesn't mean I stood there observing. It means I was right there, sleeves rolled up, involved in the process of things and those words so we learn he was at creation and he was in active in creation they those words there in proverbs echo paul's words in in colossians paul said this magnificent words i i read them again i was like oh my gosh i can't believe how clear that is and i've read colossians before but here it says for by him we're talking about jesus for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, including you. 
and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So not only, that last verse, not only is he the creator of all things, he's the sustainer of all things. And so all those that will badmouth the Lord Jesus, all those that will shake their fist at the Lord Jesus, the very fact that they're allowed to continue to live here on the earth is because of his mercy and his grace. He created all things, he sustains all things. And so you you think of the cult groups that are out there, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons. You think of all the false religions of the world. Almost every religion, if not every, and all of the cult groups, particularly the Christian cult groups, those that have sort of some of the terminology of biblical Christianity but don't believe theologically what the Bible teaches, all of those cult groups and world religions diminish the deity and the majesty of Jesus Christ. And clearly, they're not reading passages like this in the book of Colossians, which very clearly speak of the deity and the majesty of Jesus Christ. Proverbs 8, and this one here in Colossians, make it clear that the Lord was not only at creation, he was actively involved in creation, that he himself was never created, but that he was eternally preexistent and brought all things into being. We learn additionally from Proverbs chapter 8, Jesus's position before the Father. And we see in verse 30 that that is a position of acceptance and delight. That the Father likes his Son. That the Father loves his Son. He says, then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always. And so here now in verse 30, we're introduced to the great love and the great desire that Jesus has that the Father, I should say, has for the Son, which should amaze us that the Father would be willing and the Son would be willing to go to the earth and the Father would be willing to send his Son to die for sinful man. But if you look at verse 31, we see that the Son has great love for the sons of men, great desire for the people of this earth. And so you look at verse 31, it says, he rejoices in his inhabited world. He delights in the children of men. Notice he cries out to them, my sons, if we're thinking of Jesus here, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Listen to me. Not just do what I say, but listen to me because blessed are those that listen to me. I want you to be blessed. I love you, the Lord is saying here. So these truths that are communicated in Proverbs 8 of the Old Testament, I think they magnify the wonder of what we know of Christ as revealed in the new. So let me give you an example of this. So you consider again what we've learned here about the way the father delights daily in his son and that he has done so always for all eternity, from all eternity past to all eternity present. You think about that and then you remind yourself of the New Testament verse that you probably know very well, that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. I remember years ago I was at a pastor's conference and we had a missionary fellow that was up and speaking and he said, pastors, if I could please ask one thing. Please don't send to us, to the mission field, any people you yourself wouldn't hire. You see what I'm saying? No. And what he said, what he meant was this. Please don't send us your problems to get rid of them. Please don't, the people, oh gosh, this guy, you should go to the mission field, far, far away. You know, he said, don't do that. Send us the folks that you yourself would hire if you had the means to, if you had the needs to. That's the people we need here on the mission field. 
And I bring that up because it's not as if the father was sick of his son, couldn't stand his son being around. You know, you're old enough now, you should get out of here and send him down to the earth. The father loved the son, delighted in the son daily from all eternity past. And yet he sends his son that he might die on our behalf. Doesn't that truth magnify the wonder of God so loved the world that he would send his only begotten son? It sure does. So meditate on that a bit, that God, nonetheless, he loves us to such a, an extent that he would send his son to die for us as sinners. And so we have this understanding of the preexistent eternal nature of Christ in our minds. We have this knowledge that from eternity it was established he would be our messianic savior. And we are aware, hopefully now in a fresh way, that not only was Jesus at creation, but that he participated in this whole process. So with, with that background from the Old Testament, consider these words now from the New. Apostle Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God and did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. He was found in human form, and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In the juxtaposed with the wonder of who Jesus is, that he would come and humble himself even to the point of death on a cross. How remarkable that the king of glory would come and serve as he did. Amen? Spend some time meditating on that this week. And a lot of your little problems, my little problems, and those things that frustrate me, tend to fade away a little bit, don't they? When I fix my eyes on heaven a little bit more. And so certainly these verses can be used for us to think about Jesus, but in the context, Solomon has been talking about wisdom in the context of things. And so we return to that again, looking at this from the perspective of wisdom. You go back to verse 18, Solomon says, riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and my yield than choice silver. When Solomon says here, I mentioned this before, that wisdom is better than gold and silver, Solomon was a man that had lots of gold and silver. And so he could compare the two better than most of us probably in this room would. And so he says there and unequivocally declares, my fruit is better than gold. Wisdom's fruit is better than gold, even fine gold. Wisdom's yield is better than choice silver. We learn here in verse 20, it speaks of those that build their lives upon the wisdom of God, that they will walk in the, path, the way of righteousness and in the path of justice that they will be established in this life and in the next. As you see there in verse 21, granting an inheritance to those that love me. So the, the wisdom of God, when applied in a person's life, gives that life substance. It gives that life meaning and purpose. It gives that life stability. For all of those that pursue it in the same way as a relationship with Jesus Christ will do, in a person's life as well. It gives a life substance, a reason to live, meaning, and it gives a life stability. Now to show how valuable wisdom is and how it's a good idea, it's a just idea to pursue wisdom, 
Notice what Solomon says in verse 27. He says, I was there when the heavens were established. He says, I was there when the earth was formed. In 27. In 28, he says, I was there when the skies above were formed and the fountains of the deep, as we read about in the scripture, came about. He says in verse 29, essentially, when the sea was told, you can cover 71% of the earth's surface, but you will not cover this portion of land here or that portion of land there. You cannot go any further than that, despite the fact that overwhelmingly the sea covers the earth. Wisdom says, I was there when that decision was made. So if this were a human being with all of these types of experiences, I was there when the earth was laid, I was there when the skies were put in place, I was there when the wisdom, when the water was designated as where it can go and where it can't go. If this were actually a human being, our response would be, my goodness, you're a person with quite a bit of experience. I should probably sit and listen to you. You think if you had something at work and they were going to bring in a speaker to kind of teach all of us, and you're reading that person's bio, present at the laying of the foundation of the earth, you know, (laughs) a person who was consulted about how the water should work, you know, all this stuff. You're like, man, this person knows what they're talking about. I should listen. And you would sit on the edge of your chair to do so. Notice also it says there in verse 29, not only was I there for all of these things, but I was beside him like a master workman. Again, that phrase means not only was he there observing, but he was there, she was there participating in this whole process. And so this seems to be a person that we should listen to. We should put our attention on that particular person because they seem to be someone that knows uh, their stuff. Solomon continues, and that's what, Sol- that's what Solomon's trying to communicate. Wisdom knows. Listen, listen, son, listen. Now, Solomon continues, verse 32. He says, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. For whoever finds me finds life. And obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself, and all who hate me love death. Those who get to know this wisdom and listen to this wisdom, Solomon makes clear, they're the ones that are blessed. You look in verse 32, blessed are those who keep my ways. You look at verse 34, blessed is the one who listens to me. And he closes out the chapter here, Solomon does. He says, whoever finds wisdom finds life, and obtains favor from the Lord. And that's why they're blessed. Because in their pursuit of wisdom, in their um, acquisition of wisdom, they are exactly where God created them to be. Because that's what we were created to be. To know God and to walk in his ways. And his ways are the ways of wisdom. And when when we do that, and we find ourselves there, then we discover the abundant life that I've been referencing and that the Lord refers to in, I believe it's John chapter 10. Because that's what you were created to be. That's what I was created to be, to be in relationship with God and to walk in his particular ways. That's where life is. That's where blessing is. And so whoever finds me finds life and favor with the Lord. Now, in the final paragraph here, Solomon sets forth the eternal issues involved in man's response to wisdom's call. And so as I just said, she pronounces a blessing to those who listen to her. But notice there in verse 36, 
in addition to pronouncing a blessing to those who find her, she also reveals the danger for those that fail to find her or those who refuse to embrace her. And as it says in 36, he who fails to find me injures himself. Injures himself. And all who hate me love death. And so no wonder Solomon ends the chapter by saying once again, hear my instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. You and I, we would be wise to pay heed to these words as well. Listen, hear. Let them go into your ears and settle down in your heart. One final point. Look at verse 35. Whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. Certainly that applies to wisdom. That's the context. But to go back now and let's take out the word wisdom or the word me there and put Jesus in there. That whoever finds Jesus finds life. That's what the scripture teaches. The apostle Peter boldly, boldly, days earlier, weeks earlier, he was running for his life and hiding from little girls. And now he stands up and he boldly declares just months after this, if, if, if that, more likely weeks, in the book of Acts, he says this, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The Bible is extremely clear on that, that there is no other way given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved. So to take this Proverbs passage, we could say it this way, whoever finds Jesus finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. And so it would be a mistake for us to leave here this morning without asking just this question. Have you found the Lord? More properly, perhaps, has the Lord found you? As he's been knocking, have you opened up that door to receive him? Have you been saved, to use the the terminology that we often use? Have you been forgiven of your sins? You need to be. Because he who finds life, or finds Jesus, finds life. But he who shuns the Lord, refuses to embrace the Lord, the danger, therefore, is death. John the Apostle said this, Again, couldn't be more clear. He says, whoever has the Son has life, and whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. That's what the Bible teaches. And so, friend, if you're here and you have never given your life to the one who gave his life for you, before you leave today, I exhort you. Speak with the person that brought you. You can come forward. You can speak with me or some of the others that will be up here. And we'll help you get started in a relationship with Jesus Christ. But you need to do it before you come to the end of your days. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the fact that not only do you reveal sort of our problem, but you solve that problem as well. So not only do you reveal that we are a people that are separated from you by our sin, but you sent forth our son, the one that you delight in. And even before the foundation of the earth was laid, the scripture says, it was ordained that you would come and you'd give your life on our behalf. And Father, we know that whoever finds wisdom, whoever finds the Lord Jesus finds life. And so Lord, we pray even now, Lord, for those that are with us that may have yet begun a relationship with you. Lord, perhaps even coming here for many weeks or months or years and have heard these things but have refused to embrace them as of yet, I pray this morning that you would open up their heart to receive. 
Lord, as I look out over the room, I think of, uh, I see the hundreds of faces here, 100 faces or so that are here. Many I know, Lord, you've called to yourself. Many I know their stories even. And how in truth, none of us were really seeking you. But you sought us out and you made yourself known to us. And you made it so that there was no other choice but to receive the forgiveness and cleansing that comes in relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we are asking that you might do that again this morning. Lord, that you'd open up the heart of those that yet believe. And you'd cause cleansing and washing and forgiveness to flood in, to enter in. And we believe these are prayers according to your will. So we ask that you might do them. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.